Welcome to our 2021 season of MesoTV. MesoTV is a program by the Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation, a national 501c3 nonprofit organization. The Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation, or Meso Foundation for short, is an organization that provides patient support and education services, funds peer-reviewed research, and advocates for increased funding of mesothelioma research. This 2021 season of programming is made possible with the support of our generous sponsors. They are MRHFM, Bellican Fox, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Novacure, Merck, the Gorey Law Firm, and Early, Lucarelli, Sweeney, and Meisenkothen. You can learn more about our organization and about Miso TV on our website at curemiso.org. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Taylor Ripley. I'm the director of the Mesothelioma Treatment Center at Baylor College of Medicine. And on behalf of our team, as well as uh, the Mesa Foundation, I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Edmondson, who's a neurologist and a pain specialist at Baylor College of Medicine. Dr. Viswanathan, who is a neurosurgeon with a particular interest in uh, cancer-related pain. And Dr. Jean Choi, who's a surgical oncologist who specializes in HIPEC and um, abdominal procedures for mesothelioma. So to start this roundtable, I'm, I'm gonna start with Dr. Viswanathan. And so would you mind explaining to us for patients with persistent pain despite maximal opioid therapy, can you discuss the interventional options to reduce their pain? Certainly, Dr. Ripley. You know, thankfully, uh, the interventional management of pain has really evolved a lot over the last 10 years. There are really three types of interventions that we can do when somebody is suffering. One is to stimulate the nervous system. So we're able to electrically stimulate the spinal cord through an implantable device or electrically stimulate parts of the nervous system. And this can be really be a tremendous intervention for patients with pain related to surgical procedures that have been performed and various types of neuropathic pain or pain due to nerve injury. The second type of intervention that we can perform is infusing medications into the spinal fluid. And uh, this can really uh, be tremendous in terms of reducing pain while preventing patients from having side effects associated with pain medications. The third type of intervention would be ways to interrupt how pain is transmitted in the nervous system. And one type of intervention like this is called a chordotomy, where we interrupt the pain pathway within the spinal cord. And this is of particular use in patients that have mesothelioma and cancer-related pain. All right, thank you. so you mentioned chordotomy. Will you discuss who might be a candidate for this procedure? Certainly. So chordotomy is a way of interrupting a pain pathway in the spinal cord, and that pain pathway is called the spinothalamic tract. And thankfully, we can do this using just a needle, so it's not really a surgical procedure, but rather an intervention where we place the needle and ultimately an electrode within the spinothalamic tract in the spinal cord. And it's particularly useful for patients who have cancer and who have one-sided pain or pain on one side of the body. So particularly for mesothelioma, these would be patients that have chest wall pain, maybe pain medicine have given them some relief, but they're still suffering or they have side effects associated with the pain medicines. And we can interrupt the pain pathway 
where the pain signals are traveling, and this can provide immediate and fairly long-term relief for their cancer pain. Uh, this is a procedure that can be redone should the pain come back. Um, and in our studies that we performed along with supportive care physicians and pain physicians, we really found some very promising results. Thank you. So now I want to turn over to Dr. Edmondson, who's a neurologist and focuses in pain as well. Dr. Edmondson, before we talk about specific ways to help pain based on the site of location or interventions, can you give us a broad overview of the different classes of pain medication and how they interact or are used in combination most effectively? Okay. So um, as you know, um, there are a variety of analgesics and some are opioids and some are non-opioids. If you have mild pain, some folks may take uh, ibuprofen or acetaminophen to, uh, to handle that pain. Um, that type of pain could be a variety of um, pain, we call nociceptive pain, a bruise, uh, back pain, nonspecific back pain, a variety of um, orodental sort of pain. And then there are opioids, which uh, are uh, a gradient of stronger medications uh, that can be used to control pain. Uh, we also have what we call um, neuropathic adjuvant drugs, and these are largely anticonvulsants that are used to treat pain that is generated by irritation of uh, the nervous system or something that we call sensitization, uh, where it, uh, the pain is enhanced because of inflammation in the tissue that also um, interact with the neural structures locally in that area. And in cancer and specifically, in, in specific, um, these adjuvants are especially helpful because the um, nerves in that local bed where the tumor is can be affected and irritated as well. Thank you. So one other thing that I've heard from a lot of patients and I want to discuss, if a patient is taking enough medication that he or she is drowsy, are there, what do you recommend to help decrease the sedation associated with higher doses of these medicines? Well, the first thing that we would do is to try to be as sparing as we can with the sedating meds. And that sometimes means that instead of uh, using a very high dose of an opioid, uh, we can reduce that by doing what we call multimodal pharmacologic therapy. And in essence, what that means is combine drugs. So sometimes we can add an a, uh, anticonvulsant drug like gabapentin or pregabalin. Uh, we can add certain antidepressant drugs that also decrease the sensitization in the neural bed. Uh, and these may be um, uh, amitriptyline or a variety of other um, uh, antidepressant drugs that has that uh, degree of activity. And uh, if necessary, we can also cross over into interventional approaches. And that may include nerve blocks. Uh, so, that brings us uh, to the one last topic and a topic that relates to what we've already heard from Dr. Viswanathan. 
At what point when you're caring for a patient in which they have uh, escalating requirements for management or escalating pain, do you start to think that uh, interventional procedures become necessary? Sometimes they can be combined uh, relatively early in the course if it looks as though uh, you're making several titration and uh, medications and side effects are starting to improve. So that could be offered and uh, some of these approaches are not terribly invasive. Some uh, may have uh, a certain risk associated with them, but generally I would recommend at least uh, giving those options so that the patient on their course can decide when they may wanna do that. And so, for example, if someone has upper abdominal pain above the, the belly button level, uh, sometimes we can do a celiac plexus block or we can do a splanchnic nerve block, especially if it goes into the, under the sternum and the epigastric area. Um, so um, those are some of the interventional things that we can do. And as Dr. Vishwanathan mentioned uh, later in the course, if a lot of these interventions are ineffective, then uh, surgical approaches or an intrathecal pump can be implanted. So explain to us what, how you perform a splanchnic nerve or a celiac axis block. Uh, generally, this can be done via two approaches. Sometimes a gastroenterologist can do an endoscopy uh, put a scope down and shine a light uh, in the area where the celiac plexus is, go through the stomach to the celiac plexus and inject some medication. Usually, usually it would be phenol or alcohol to disrupt the nerve, and that would allow a longer duration of relief than to just do a local anesthetic block in that area. Uh, as an interventionalist, my approach is under fluoroscopy, and this is done by going from the back um, in the upper lumbar area, close to somewhere around T12, L1, L2 in that area. Um, and uh, we put in uh, needles from the back under sedation and you go in front of the spine at that level, L1 let's say, and uh, you infiltrate the area around the um, celiac plexus. The splanchnic block is done right where the diaphragm has what we call cruce, or right at the junction between where the diaphragm ends and uh, you're going almost into what we call the mediastinum. So you can put a needle high up in that area and you can um, get a solution to travel up to um, about the mid-chest level and down to about the L2 level uh, to cover um, uh, chest pain that's more along the substernal area and the epigastric area. So these comments you're making about abdominal pain lead me to a few questions for Dr. Choi. Dr. Choi, do you see a palliative role for resection of peritoneal disease for pain control? Uh, I, I do. I, I see it in my practice uh, where patients generally, when they have meso peritoneal mesothelioma, the pain can be generalized and can be dull, sort of achy. 
But when patients present with a change in the nature or the characters, characterization of the pain, it makes me wonder if there's involvement of muscle or, or an area that may be more involved uh, that might be amenable to surgical resection, where if we debulk the tumor, the patient may have uh, alleviation of their symptoms. And so when patients come to me with new symptoms of pain that's not generalized, I always often worry that there may be some kind of growth that's encroaching on something critical, whether it be bone, nerve, or vessels. So often we get imaging to take a look. And often when they have a different nature pain, it's often there is a, a surgically correctable cause. And for example, if disease is located around the bowel and it's causing a solitary stricture where patients are having uh, uh, pain associated with having bowel movements, there's, there's certainly a role for surgery uh, to alleviate and palliate that patient. But obviously, you know, the critical question is, is we need to make sure one, the patient in, in terms of patient factors, is the patient up to having a surgery? Uh, and is this going to uh, be a durable response? We certainly don't want to add to the problem by doing an unnecessary surgery. So it's all, it's all those considerations, but I certainly think that there is a role, uh, especially if, you know, if you know, opioids or medications do not work, and especially if you find something on imaging that is correctable. So you're discussing pain that, that is mainly related to actual tumor growth. But as we all know, many of these patients have ascites or fluid in their abdomen. This leads to its own set of symptoms that might be a little different than the pain from the direct tumor. Can you talk about the pressure that patients get from fluid buildup and whether or not you can manage that with simpler procedures such as catheters or drainage? Yeah, in, in a majority of peritoneal mesothelioma patients, they present with exactly what you're describing, wet mesothelioma, they have ascites and it's intractable ascites. And unfortunately, the ascites causes a quite a difficult uh, uh, planning course in the sense that, that patients complain, not necessarily of pain, but discomfort, uncomfortableness. They can't get comfortable. They have shortness of breath because they have significant uh, uh, pressure on their diaphragms. And so it, it, we do, we can put catheters in patients or do paracentesis. Obviously, we like to, if they have intractable ascites and their disease is not uh, controlled with chemo or, or, or cured by chemo uh, or surgery, then the alternative is to place a temporary catheter or do paracentesis. But I think a catheter is pre preferable because it's indwelling. You don't have to have patient come in continuously getting paracentesis, which obviously is inconvenient and also can increase the risk of infection. Uh, likewise, you know, there, we have done patients where we can't debulk them in any meaningful way of their peritoneal disease, but they have intractable ascites. So the thing we can do is a minimally invasive or laparoscopic approach where we put cannulas for hypothermic intraperitoneal chemoperfusion. And that alone can actually cause the ascites to, uh, uh, to dry up essentially. And what that does, it, it actually does decrease the patient's complaint mm -hmm. of pain, subjective pain. In addition, their shortness of breath and even fatigue, uh, which is very common among these patients, actually improve, which I think leads to a better tolerance of additional therapy if they can get it. Uh, and likewise, uh, patients eat, uh, their malnutrition may improve because they're more likely to uh, have a regaining of their appetite when they're not short of breath and distended from the ascites. That brings up one last question I have for you. As you 
uh, just mentioned, the patients when they have intractable ascites often have trouble eating and therefore their nutrition is severely affected. However, when the protein loss and the fluid loss from the catheter uh, occur, the patient can also have malnutrition. Do you recommend nutritional supplementations or interventions to help patients maintain their weight and uh, nutritional status? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when they come to our clinic, regardless of what stage in terms of their workup, they always see a dietitian before they leave uh, uh, our, our initial consultation. I think that we emphasize uh, nutritional supplementation at every aspect, whether it's pre-op, post-op, or just shortly, in, you know, uh, you know, sort of a long-term uh, uh, situation. As you're right, and there are some patients where, because they have catheters for drainage ascites, we bring them in uh, every three to four days, or we send, uh, set up uh, home health where they're getting IV fluids uh, as a way of also resuscitating until we can sort of stabilize their weight and uh, improve their nutrition and appetite. Sure, thank you. So this brings us to the end of their questions. So I'll open up to the panel. Does anybody have any final comments that they would like to make in regard to patients who are suffering from pain and secondary to mesothelioma? What was my final comment from the, uh, from the perspective of someone who does interventions for pain? You know, we really don't want patients to suffer. You know, the time to consider these interventions is when medications or other strategies have not been successful. And if your pain is really interfering in your quality of life, many of the procedures that we offer are relatively minimally invasive, meaning 30 to 45 minute procedures where someone goes home the same day and they really have uh, good evidence behind them to show that they can improve quality of life. So I would encourage patients to talk to their doctor, talk to various specialties and understand what options are available to them. Uh, but many times we can improve quality of life significantly. Yeah, and I, I would say that I'm a big advocate of getting uh, everybody involved quick uh, at an early stage because ultimately they may not need it, but uh, need it at that acute moment when they present. But ultimately with patients as they uh, undergo treatment, there may be failures in which their disease progresses and their pain symptoms worsen. So it's often, for me, in my mindset, it's a no-brainer that we make sure that uh, we have pain specialists available so, as resources so that uh, they can participate in the patient's care. Because I firmly believe that it, in terms of palliation, especially with patients who have progressive disease, palliation is key because I think it ultimately, when, when they feel better, ultimately they eat better. And ultimately, I think there is an increase in, in, in their survival of these patients. Yeah, I would say ditto to that, that um, it's helpful to have a, a team approach and a multidisciplinary um, a foundation. And as a pain guy, uh, my goal is not as much uh, to bring the pain score down as much as to bring suffering down, because in the end, uh, that's what really counts. So it's, Someone is in a lot of distress, a lot of suffering, uh, with significant impairment in quality of life, then we really need uh, the stretch of several disciplines together, working together to make that person not suffer. So, so if we can bring the pain to zero, wonderful, but if we bring the suffering to zero or as close to it as possible, that's, that's the bonus. Okay, team, I appreciate all your comments and um, 
find this very helpful and educational every time we listen to you. So again, my name is Taylor Ripley. I'm the director of the Mesothelioma Treatment Center at Baylor College of Medicine, and thank you for joining us today.